you know, I never at all contemplated working in the seafood industry. It just happened to land that way. But it gets into your blood very, very quickly. Um, gets into the pores of your skins first. Um, and it, it's just one of those things I get very excited about. This is Fishtails, a seafood podcast. I'm John Sussman. The Sydney fish market, aside from being my commercial home for the past 30 years, is one of the most iconic food markets in the world. The first Sydney fish market was built by the City Council and opened in 1872 on Forbes Street, Woolloomooloo. Prior to this, fishermen had hawked their catch around the streets or sold fish direct from their boats in Sydney Cove or at Woolloomooloo Bay. The original market building was measuring only 83 metres long and 22 metres wide and was soon too small to serve the growing city of Sydney as it was expanded in 1888 and 1893. Meanwhile, a private fish market opened in Redfern in 1891. This wasn't popular with many residents who were woken at four o'clock in the morning apparently by the rumble of fish carts and the vulgar ejaculations and rude raillery of the hawkers. However, the Redfern market was the cause of much confusion in the supply chain and in 1923, Sydney City Council took control of all fish marketing and all such private fish markets were closed. The Woolloomooloo fish market was also closed and fish sales were moved to the municipal markets in Haymarket. In 1945, under the Fisheries and Oyster Farms Act, the state government assumed control over fish marketing and introduced a regulated system for sales. The fish markets were then moved to its current site on Blackwattle Bay in Piermont in 1966. The Sydney fish market is now the biggest in the Southern Hemisphere, handling around 15,000 tonnes of seafood a year. It is a significant tourist attraction, with wholesale buyers and merchants jostling scale to fin with tourists and local consumers, all hungry for a feed of fish. As Australia's home of seafood, Sydney fish market is the lifeblood for fishers, aquaculturists and cooperatives from not only around the country, but also New Zealand and even Indonesia and Malaysia these days. The market is currently undergoing a redevelopment, which, when completed in around 2024, promises a state-of-the-art facility, befitting a waterfront icon on par with the Sydney Opera House and Harbour Bridge. Gustinoon is a 40-year veteran of not only the Sydney fish market, but of the Australian seafood industry. Over his time at the Sydney fish market, Gus has been a driver of change, overseeing its transition from a rough and tumble clearinghouse to one of the most sophisticated and progressive seafood markets in the world. Uh, Gus Danoon, I'm um, currently located at the Sydney Fish Market here in Blackwater Bay, Piemont. Um, my current role, uh, and it's fairly recent, um, but I'm the head of um, uh, operations for the new build and also our quota management fund. I never set out on a seafood career. Uh, Furthest from my mind, actually, John, you know, my, my ambitions was always to be an IT specialist and that's the, um, that's the vocation I headed down. Um, uh, so my involvement with the fish market began basically to, to get a job somewhere, I suppose, while I was doing some studying. Um, so I actually commenced work here, I do remember it to the very day, on a Friday, it was the 11th of December, 1981. Um, and back in those days, you might recall, John, the build, the markets was we were in the old building across the uh, what we know now as the car park. Um, office set up, um, you know, at the exit point to where is actually now the the road that takes you out into the back car park, and the buildings were spread across the foreshore. 
um, and very dark, you know, dingy in some respects, old buildings, you know, sort of things that personify what a what fish markets generally around the world that people, you know, believe they are, but they're obviously anything but that these days. So it's a long time ago. Uh, back in those days, you might recall the market used to conduct all of its sales via the old traditional voice sales. Um, a lot of theatre, um, quite enjoyable to watch actually as a young person first, you know, in a in a in a in a in a work environment. Um, of that magnitude, you know, seeing the auctioneer standing up with a microphone in front of him, having someone by their side, penciling the sale details and then buyers clambering around a fence, gesturing in all sorts of manner to the auctioneer to get their attention to cast their bids. Um, and that's, that's, that was my first experience at the market all those years ago. Prior to 1945, the marketing of seafood in New South Wales was conducted by licensed fish agents operating out of the Haymarket fish market or by unlicensed operators elsewhere in the state. The New South Wales Government amended the Fisheries and Oyster Farms Act to effectively cancel all licences held by Sydney fish agents and transferred the marketing of fish in New South Wales to the Chief Secretary's Department. The Chief Secretary's Department established the Fish Marketing Authority, which oversaw a regulated market system and controlled the centralised fish market in Sydney until 1994. Yeah, look, it was a much simpler supply chain in some ways, John, because as you might recall, the entity as it was known in those days was the New South Wales Fish Marketing Authority. So it was a government trading enterprise. Um, and if back at that time, you know, uh, the, the marketing of seafood was highly regulated. We were ostensibly a New South Wales operation. It's probably fair to say when I commenced... 99.9% of all the product that the market handled in those days was probably around about 16, 16,500 tonnes was, was ostensibly New South Wales captured. Now, obviously, in those days, we were seeing a lot of product from southern New South Wales because the Port of Eden was one of the most productive ports in, in New South Wales. A lot of volume fish. In those days, you were all seeing a lot of gem fish coming through. Um, the orange roughy product um, was coming through. Um, but generally, just trawling it caught huge amounts of product, particularly during those winter months. Um, so the supply chain ostensibly was, yeah, as, a, as a licensed commercial fisher, we didn't have aquaculture in those days in New South Wales. It was only in its early stages throughout Queensland and, and the um, and Northern Territory. But in New South Wales, um, you, you were operated as a fisher, either you operated through your local cooperative or if you were too far removed. And in those days, I think there were about 21 or 22 cooperatives spread between the Queensland border and the Victorian border. Um, I think they try to try to get them equal distance apart, um, but does, doesn't always quite work out that way. And if you were some distance away from your nearest co-op and there was a, a distance, and I can't recall the precise um, distance from your co-op, you know, you could apply for what they called a consent, and that allowed you to trade your catch locally in your town, so to speak, um, but you had to record and advise government in whatever means they had available at that stage. So the supply chain was a lot simpler and there was only a handful of trucking companies that delivered the product to the market on a, on a weekly basis. New technology that displaces an established system and shakes up an industry or creates a completely new industry itself can be challenging for most big end of town businesses, let alone for the dynamic and opportunistic task of trading for seafood. Most people in the seafood supply chain, from catch to cook, are working on a just-in-time game of pass-the-parcel, moving product as quickly as possible before it literally goes off. Implementing change, 
particularly new technology into the old seafood world, is an Eptulian task. It began a lot earlier than when it actually commenced because there was that transition the markets had to go through first. So, you know, I, I believe, you know, one of the reasons why I was employed because I could see what I was doing and, it, and they were on the precipice of doing the simplest of things first and that was to computerise their accounting operations. And that was the precursor to ultimately putting a little bit of um, IT into the operations in those days. That was simply by producing um, auction sales sheets, computerised auction sales sheets that they wrote the name of the buyer and the price alongside and then that was entered in as a data entry process which replaced the old, you know, compute, uh, the, 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 uh, com- they were called comp systems in those days. They were old burrows that produced, you punched a whole bunch of details into keyboards and you produced a punch tape which you used to send off to somewhere and they came back and they deciphered it for you and they gave you reports. So it was to replace all that whole process. And it, but it was about 19, early 1987 that the decision was made to proceed with the full recom, uh, computerization of SFM's operations, which was primarily the auction. And part of that process was to invest, at that stage, they'd already investigated a number of alternative selling systems of which the Dutch auction system kept prevailing. And so it was in early 87 when that work commenced where there were two actually pro- projects running concurrently. One was the back-end system, which is the support system, and one was the front-end, which was the Dutch auction system. Now, I was part of that process which determined which ultimate vendor we went with. And we had designs from obviously the ones overseas, you know, the European designs of which there were two. There was a system based out of Canada and Ontario. Um, and then there was a couple of local engineering companies that also put through their hat in the ring. And ultimately, after a long process, it was decided to go with a, with a local one of the local engineering companies in those days. I don't believe this business exists anymore, but they used to operate under the banner of Kel Aerospace. Quite a fancy name, very um, quite intricate in their in their approach. Um, they were into high scientific sort of des- um, design solutions. This was something right up their alley, and. Um, through a combination of both state and Commonwealth funding, they, you know, it was it was possible for them to be a, a competitive tender in the process. And obviously, being a government agency, governments were driving a lot of um, private um, investment into basically um, government government related entities. So it, it, it was made to happen that this local provider was ultimately the the deliverer of the Dutch auction system. And in those days, we really relied heavily on what we understood uh, were the systems that prevailed throughout Europe, particularly the, the flour and vegetable markets, but there are quite a few seafood markets in Europe and in the, in the as late as the late 70s that were already utilising this type of technology. We were just a bit slow here in Australia to catch up on it, but ultimately we designed our own. Um, that system was first introduced around the time to coincide with us moving into the building where we are today because what a lot of people don't understand is the Dutch auction system that for it to operate it needs a, a buy auditorium source not in every case but we decided to go in that form and that wasn't possible in the old building and so the market decided it was it needed to relocate it had already made not ready-made building, but a building across the road, which in those days many may not realise this, but was the paper store for the Fairfax Empire. So all those old paper reels they used to see coming off these um, newspaper print presses, that's where that paper store was held. And so ultimately the market purchased that building from the Fairfax group. I believe it was around about the mid-'80s because it sat, it sat you know, um, waiting for a decision on what to do with it for a couple of years before construction finally commenced to repurpose this, the building that we're in today to what we have um, in terms of the market and the offices that, that support it. So 
all that seemed to coincide. Uh, timing was, was in some respects, um, some might say it was planned that way. I think it just happened by, by accident, to be honest. But by late 1989, we actually already had the system in its early stages of implementation. Uh, it was about October, November that we started exposing our buyers to the new method of buying that was through the voice auction system. Uh, so we replaced the voice auction system with the Dutch auction system. So that was a long process because it was something very new, very unique to them. Um, but we did transition them ultimately. And by February of 1990, we had literally shut down the old operation had moved everything lock, stock and barrel into the new um, and commenced the um, the Dutch auction system. Now, in those days, we weren't selling everything on the Dutch auction, but probably about 75% of the volume that we we're handling, things like mud crabs and, um, you know, the tuna auctions. We were still conducting the old traditional auctions. Some of them, in those days, you might recall, John, we used to have a lot of mixed boxes that used to come in from New South Wales operators. Nowhere near that that sort of volume these days but th those are the products that we decided not to transact on the Dutch auction clocks um, it was felt that it, you know we still needed to give the buyers enough time to understand their new method of purchasing they were a little bit hesitant as you would un un expect you know all of a sudden they had to you know, instead of raising their hands or gesturing in other forms they had to press buttons on a, on a keypad in front of them uh, but to their credit um, you know, it, they didn't take them long to adjust sure we started off slowly in those days, we had two clocks, but we only ran with the one at any time, so we didn't actually run uh, more than one auction concurrently. But over time, we built that that confidence in them. Obviously, we had to prove to them the system worked because they were they were concerned that they would come in too high and buy and pay for fish more than what they were prepared to. On the other hand, of course, suppliers thought either buyers would know when to come in and might bid too low, and so they were concerned that they would get their, their fish would be sold much cheaper. But they soon realized that the efficiency the system provided was that not only was the pricing pretty close to the mark, but it was more consistent right through from start to finish. Landing on an industry-changing technology required of Gus an equal measure of knowledge of both the seafood industry and the world of IT, with lashings of confidence, commitment, and downright guts. Now, obviously, everyone's familiar with a traditional auction, and we all probably seen it on TV or seen it live, whether you're buying, you know, selling a car or a house mostly. Um, so the traditional auction starts at a low price, and the, uh, and the auctioneer will obviously pan the, um, the room, or if it's a room or, or yard or whatever, to get a bid. And if he doesn't, they, he'll keep dropping the price until he gets someone bidding. And then generally what happens, you get counter bids, and as with each counter bid, it bumps the price up by a predetermined amount as set by the auctioneer before they commence. That's how we sold every scale, every crustacean of seafood we had in the market. The Dutch auction system actually works on a, on a reverse principle, and that is the auctioneer, who's generally the same person um, or same group of people that are trading products daily, they have a pretty good feel for where product pricing should will be at the end of each day. Now, there might be the odd demand here and there, but they'll quickly adjust. So what they'll do is they'll determine if a product is worth $10 a kilo, they might start the auction at anywhere between 3 and $5 above what they believe it will sell. And then the process works in the opposite. It actually then price will descend. And it will continue descending until someone, in our case, presses a button on a keypad in front of them. And that will constitute a bid. So effectively, the first bidder is the final bidder. Now, that method of SAR was actually introduced by the Dutch, as the name suggests. Some purported to be more than 160, 170 years ago. And they did so because in those days, 
that method of traditional sales was being applied to the sale of tulips. And on a large markets day, what they found, again, according to historical records, was that the longer the market went, the cheaper the prices became on tulips because the tulips started to wilt, sort of losing their 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 their, their, their um, sorry their their attractiveness to the buyer. And as such, on those larger days, the, those at the back end of the market were getting lower prices, so they had to move away from that. And yes, they didn't have technology 170 odd years ago. But what they did was they said, okay, we went the opposite and we asked for the buyers when they raised their hand that the first person to raise will be the sale. And that concludes the sale. So they found even the old doing it without technology, it was a far quicker way, much more efficient way. But what they also found was the prices were more consistent from start to finish, regardless of size of auction. And if there was any variation, it wasn't to the magnitude that you would get in a manual auction. So that type of selling was, was lends itself nicely to, to automation in some respects. And so it was in the 1960s, apparently, that they actually introduced the first clock face. And yes, it was still a manual clock that started by the auctioneer. And it started descending, and then the first person to raise the auctioneer would stop the clock. And that was purely for the benefit of the other buyers to say, yes, we have actually got a, a valid bidder. And then they will take the price and then continue on, reset their clock and so forth. Um, obviously, technology, as it started to develop through the late 70s, early 80s, you started seeing these clock faces appearing more often. The first of them really was probably the Oldsmere market, the largest flower and plant market in the world in Holland. Um, and that really was set, set the benchmark for what you basically see today. So in our system, we work precisely the same way. The auctioneer starts, sets the price, price descends. We actually drop at a rate of each $1 revolution actually takes 2.6 seconds to, to complete. So it's a fairly fast system. Some might think, how do the buyers keep up? But you'd be pleasantly surprised, and they're very comfortable at that speed, to not only be doing that with one clock, but in our biz, in our system and with three clocks running concurrently. So, it you know, we, we I say to people, because I was here in those early days and on the big market days, you know, when we were getting products, products of upwards of 100, 120 tonne to sell, the fear we had in that was that we would still be selling that fish at three o'clock and four o'clock in the afternoon to basically a handful of buyers that were left, of which mostly were those that were present on the site, ran their business from the site. These days, we don't have that concern if we get upwards of those volumes because we can clear that product in less than half the time. In fact, we can move product at the rate of 20 ton plus per hour. In the old days, as I say, some might say the good old days, that best we can produce was probably about five to six ton an hour. So you can see straight away and the, the efficiencies that it creates. Um, it's a very simple system to follow, to learn for the first time if you haven't been exposed to it. Many many buyers, when they come to us for the first time, they see these three clocks. They get a little bit, they're a bit apprehensive at first, but it's not until they sit down and, and someone takes them through and takes less than a couple of minutes to explain how it all works that they very quickly pick it up. And they realise it's actually not a daunting system after all. So, it's it certainly was the right decision. You know, there were a lot of naysayers at the time. I remember quite vividly. Um, you know, because I was associated from SFM's point of view, um, buyers that were wanting to throw, hang, the, I think, chain me to the clocks. I think someone said, "We're going to chain you to those clocks, and we're going to take them off their hinges, and we're going to throw them to Black Bottle Bay with you in it." So it's it's we've come a long way from those days. These days, if there's any, you know slight technical issue with the clocks and we have to pause for a moment to rectify it. the buyers you can see them you know they, they won't be too concerned but if it takes 10 or 15 minutes they get a little bit worried that if we don't get it up and running do they have to go back to the old days of bidding which they obviously try to avoid as much as they can mm-hmm. 
When the New South Wales state government deregulated fish marketing over a two-stage, five-year period, with that first stage of deregulation coming into effect in 1997, the fishermen's cooperatives were permitted to sell directly to Sydney buyers. Total deregulation followed in November 1999, when New South Wales catchers could supply direct to any buyer in possession of a fish receiver's permit. Sydney Fish Market no longer had a monopoly over the sale of seafood in the Sydney region, demanding a pivot into sourcing seafood from further afield and being a competitor in the wholesale seafood markets. My involvement with supply of product really began probably about in the um, mid-1990s towards the back end of the 1990s. In those days, as I said, I was, I was in IT. In fact, in those days, I was, I was the IT manager. So I progressed through the, through the ranks, so to speak, and um, not only had a hand in building a lot of the front end, the back end system and the front end system, but it was now I had to you know, look at other means of, of, of um, introducing new technologies to the business, and we did do that a lot in those days. Um, you know, things like barcodes, which we take for granted these days, you know, weren't, weren't very common throughout the 80s, yet we, we, we barcoded our labels, which made, which again helps with the efficiency of data capture. You know, to things like, you know, we take uh, voice-activated recording systems for granted these days, but in those days are pretty pioneering stuff when you think about the late 80s, early 90s, uh, interactive voice recorders, IVRs, because everything is, it has an acronym in IT. Um, you know, they weren't very common, yet we were able to replace someone stand, sitting on the other side of a phone, um, talking about, you know, reading out prices to suppliers where they can dial it up themselves. Um, so that's the sort of things that, you know, like, you know that, that 10 years or so I was involved in IT, you know, went through, went past very, very quickly for me. But I had an opportunity in late 1990s to deal with the supplier type of the side of the business. And it was Graham Turk, who is now our chairman, actually, that said to me, oh, I'd like, to, I'd like you to take on a different challenge. Um, you know, we, we don't have one person specifically who's, who looks after all our supply base. Um, we have a number of people, but it doesn't, you know, he wasn't comfortable the way that was working. He wanted to have one, everything con- through one conduit. And he turned to me and I said to him, Graham, but what do I know about fish? And I said, you know, I'm your IT person. He said, well, that's all right. I don't know much about fish myself, but you and I will, will, you know, will enjoy learning together. So that's how it began for me. And I, as an old propeller head, John, you'll like this. You know, I say to people, I went from chips to fish in those days. So, so it's, it's, a corny, it's a corny line, but when I say people look at me quite quizzically and then they go, I see the funny side of that. But so that was my really my first foray into the seafood type of business. But you learn very quickly in this game, I think. You know, you've got some good people around you. The fishers are incredible. You know, it doesn't take long to just when you sit down with them and understand what they go through that they also understand you. And so supply back in those in those days, you know, we were going through a transition as well because I mentioned earlier we were a fish marketing authority. All that changed in 1994. In fact, the exact date was the 28th of October 1984. 1994, sorry, that the Fish Marketing Authority ceased to exist. The new entity, as we know today, Sydney Fish Market Proprietary Limited, was born. But that also set a course for deregulation. So I mentioned earlier that we were, we were a regulated market, which meant that every commercial fisher had to sell their product either through the central market, which was the Sydney Fish Market, or, or trade it through one of their cooperatives uh, that they might have been attached to, or they had to have a consent in which to trade their products. Anything else was deemed black marketing. Now, obviously, a privatised entity, if you continued in that vein, would create effectively a monopoly. So we had to move away from a deregulated market. And that did happen eventually. Full deregulation kicked in about five years after privatisation. There was a phasing in process. 
So that made the challenge for, for SFM to attract product even harder because no longer did commercial fishers, and in those days we also had aquaculturists on board that were, were obligated to put their products through those channels that I mentioned earlier. So not only did I have to learn much about the seafood industry in those days as, as we know it, um, the supplies and their, and, and their catch, but also attracting that product to the market. And we did a reasonably good job considering you know, most suppliers were still happy to trade with SFM and they, they could see the benefits of, of the, the, um, the Dutch auction system and what it, was, what it was providing. But you still had to work pretty hard because you now had to compete. Um, in, in those days, SFM was probably trading around about 15,000 tonnes of product. So not bad considering the changes. And as I said earlier, 16,500 was roughly the figure we had when I first commenced here and why we had such a drop because you know we stopped seeing the large volumes of gemfish. In fact, there was basically put as a zero TAC was what the Commonwealth government did and then similarly did the same thing with orange drop. So the big volume species were the ones that were lost to SFM, but, but uh, they too were lost to everybody else. So attracting supply wasn't an easy feat. But it was nonetheless uh, one that we had to work pretty hard. At, in those days as well, we, we started going beyond New South Wales. So it was much later in the piece than people realised that we started seeing product on a regular basis from outside New South Wales. But it took probably about three or four very hard years to convince people, one, to send product to Sydney uh, from interstate. Um, but we also started knocking on New Zealand's door in those days, and then the New Zealand's we that was very foreign to them to send, you know, fresh seafood to an auction market. Heaven forbid. Um, but nonetheless, we worked pretty hard. You know, we we had to expand our our offer to our buyers. We had to seek more alternate supplies because that's what it is at the end of the day. We we you know if you if you're not bringing supply across the auction floor, eventually your buyers will start to dwindle because they're finding alternative sources and then you, without that, you don't have a market. Without a market, you basically don't have a, a, an, an efficient, effective operation that you can convince suppliers to continue you supplying you. So, yeah, it, it's been a hard battle. You know, we've seen volumes drop off for all sorts of reasons. You know, a lot of government intervention, introduction of TACs on certain species, you know, New South Wales. We went through a transition in the early 80s, at the early 2000s of um, all sorts of closures to our estuaries. I think about 32 clo uh, um, uh, estuaries were closed to commercial fishers. Um, you know, attrition rate of fishers, you know, it's not one that unfortunately attracts a lot of young young people into the into the industry, but certainly not, not on, on the fisher front. But volumes certainly have, have sort of trended down, if I can say that. Um, in the last sort of 25, 30 years and probably started, that process probably started when the Nick Griner government announced the Fish Market Authority we privatised in 1992, to be honest. Um, so it's, it's been a slow, um, you know, decline since then. But what we also found was that our, our, we were targeting more specific lines of product because we started understanding our market a bit better too and what our buyers were wanting. So gone were the days when the buyers would come in and just buy whatever they thought was a good price or, or something that they could probably try different in their shops. They now were much more professional in their approach. Um, you know, the buyers are quite specific about their range of offer. You know, what they, you know, they know their demographics in their areas. They know where the, where the, where the price points are for their, for their shoppers. So they're looking for certain products and we started understanding that a little bit better and started targeting those species. So, you know, when we're doing the 16,500 tons, I know things like, you know, just the markets change, the value of products change, but that 16,500 tons probably turned over about the equivalent of 25 to $30 million of seafood. You know, the year just completed. Um, you know, we, we didn't have a great year volume-wise, but nobody did 
um, was probably around about 12,500 tonnes, but the value of that product was north of $150 million. So, you know, you, it, it's the product mix has certainly changed over the years in my time. Um, you know, we no longer do we see the large volume products, you know, things like, as I said, your gemfish, your orange ruffy, but you also had other things like your, your, your uh, mullet, you know, in the mullet season around. I think we, before the processors came on board and realized you can actually process the mullet for them for their row, you know, a lot of that mullet ended up on the floor. You know, when we had the big hits of fish they ran up the coast, whether it was jackets one year or you had Australian salmon another, a lot of that fish used to be caught and sent to the market in the hope that it would attract the price and make it worthwhile for the fisher. You know, we're a little bit more astute now in our sourcing approaches and, and how we talk to suppliers. You know, we try to avoid the gluts as much as possible because it's all about maintaining a consistent price. And um, and that and that, that that's quite important because for the shopper, what you don't want to see is prices fluctuating at, the, at, at that point of sale. You'd like to, they'd like to set some sort of consistency in that approach, and that's what we try and do these days. So, yes, whilst our volumes have declined, I think it comes down most of the, to the, the types of species. When we look behind those, it's really the volume species um, that used, we used to see repeatedly throughout the year that we probably don't see as much these days. With a long history in representing the wild catch sector of New South Wales and a significant shareholder base comprising of wild catch fishers, it's not surprising that the Sydney fish market has a commitment to the preservation and promotion of wild caught seafood. Oh, look, I think wild fish is still one of those things that buyers like to, to um, hone in on, but notwithstanding the fact that you know, aquaculture has made such a uh, you know, marked, marked impression in our marketplace, and certainly the auction doesn't lend itself to attracting a lot of aquaculture product. Um, and that's why, you know, you tend to see direct selling of that. And SFM plays a part in that role as well. But when it comes to wild capture, I think there's still that um, that affinity with it. Certainly a lot of people like this idea of still being able to get their wild caught fish and there's still plenty of it that comes through the market. Look, it's one of those things, John, that, um, you know, when I first started here, I don't think people really understood um, well, I think in some respects, they probably took for granted the availability of fresh fish and they just thought it just, you just turn on a tap and out, out it came in whatever volume you wanted. I think as the, as the um, markets become more sophisticated, I think the, the consumer has also become more astute in their, in their approach. <clears throat> There's certainly a lot more searching of their questions these days, so they want to know more about the provenance of the product. And in, you know, 20, even as recent as probably 15 years ago, you didn't really have to concern yourself much with that, but these days you certainly do. And so I think from that point of view, um, you know, consumers are certainly asking a lot more questions. And I, an operator like SFM, you know, we need to be equipped with the answers because, and we, and we, and we want them to ask us the questions because it's, it's much about us trying to, 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 to sell the credentials of the industry as it is about the products that are on offer. Gus is now charged with delivering one of the greatest changes to the Australian seafood industry in the past 100 years, the commissioning of the new Sydney fish market. The new market is a highly complex project being built under and over Blackwattle Bay. Not only will it remain the primary trading hub of seafood in Australia, but it will also become a unique retail and tourist destination. If anyone hasn't seen the images on, on, the, um, on the website, I implore you to do so because it's going to be a magnificent structure. But with that magnificent structure also comes the challenges. And, um, you know, we're taking an operation of Sydney Fishmark, which is ostensibly a single level operation. When you consider the car park orientation to the building itself, um, where the product's traded, it effectively all comes off one level. It moves horizontally 
horizontally. You know, the new building, it's a magnificent structure and it's it's going to be, I, I think in my mind anyway, it'll be Sydney's, if not Australia's next iconic building once it's complete and up and running. But the footprint on which it sits is certainly a lot smaller, but the space required is certainly as much, if not more, than what we currently have. So the only way to achieve that is to actually build a multi-story level operation, and that's, what it affect, and that's what we have. And so the challenges that we will have is to actually move the product vertically, but, it's, but it gives it a per, it'd be an opportunity for New South Wales. And ostensibly, people need to understand SFM Proprietary Limited is a New South Wales business in the sense that shareholders are those that are the licensed fishers in New South Wales and also the tenants that are placed based on this site. So they are they are our shareholders and so we are still ostensibly a New South Wales business, but we have a lot more appeal now to the rest of the country and also New Zealand. So the, the transition that we're making is is to take the operation as we know it today, and yes, and it's good as it has been and served our industry well. It started to fray at the edges. We need something different. Our approach from our how we trade our products um, is also changing. Obviously, we're talking about introducing more digital technology into the business and, and having our own platform uh, that we're taking nationwide and also into New Zealand. So the opportunities for the fishers to uh, supply, not only just New South Wales, but again around the whole country and again in New Zealand, also to to draw product uh, to draw buyers from all around the same um, geographic areas I've just described is is really exciting for the business. But at the soul of it will still be the auction. The heart that's still the heart that pumps every day and that that uh, that this business um, relies heavily on. Um, but we're going to be doing it in a very very different way, and that's I guess the most exciting part um, for a person like myself who's been with the business now. You know. I say it quietly, four decades. Um, but to see that transition from where it was when I first commenced here back in December 81 and where it's going to be in two years and a bit from now as we talk um, is actually quite exciting and I think it'll be something that the whole industry will be very, very proud of. Like many veterans of the seafood industry, Gus has both high hopes and great fears for the future of the industry. Look, I think the, the thing for the industry is, look, it's probably, at a, it's fair to say the industry is at a crossroads now, John. Um, uh, when, when we look at the, the, the operators that are in the industry from both the, from the, uh, the harvest sector through to the, the post-harvest sector, the catching through the post-harvest, you know, they're all, they're all, they're all undergoing some significant, I think, changes and if they haven't realised and they, they better get on that bike very quickly. Because I think, you know, the, the consumer is going to be driving how we, we, we ostensibly operate in the future because they are going to be more, um, you know, searching with their questions. They're, they're going to they want to know a lot more about what they're eating, what they're putting inside their mouths. Um, you know, it, it's, it's, it's as much about telling the story of the seafood that we, we're eating, but not just selling it. Uh, all that information is highly critical. You know, it's about introducing other technologies. So we're talking about technology, that's another level of technology that is going to start demanding, I think, um, you know, from the moment the fish is pulled out of the water to the moment it lands on your plate. It needs to track every part of that journey and, and, and also anything that it, it requires to have answered as it goes along that journey. You know, they're going to not want to understand more about the cold chain. Um, so these are the sort of things where I think the industry needs to transition but also volumes, as I said, they're not going to increase in terms of the wild capture industry. Um, you know, Europe is a good example of that, and it's, we're seeing it already happening here in Australia. Um, the aquaculture is certainly the way forward, 
and people have you know their own thoughts about aquaculture uh, and, and again rightly so everyone you know, everyone's entitled to those views but I think it's important to have to explain to people that as far as a food source is concerned um, seafood still has probably the, the smallest footprint of all food proteins um, in terms of in terms of its its its, its uh, demand on the environment so to speak um, but I think it's one that's worth telling because um, many people, I think, still, yeah, they enjoy their seafood, but they don't know much about it. And I think it's there's an opportunity for us as an industry wide to make use of that because we're not going to be trading any any more volume than what we are at the moment in terms of wild captured. Um, aquaculture will certainly fill that void. People have their thoughts about aquaculture product. Um, but I think um, you know, businesses like SFM has worked very, very hard over a long time to educate the people about all the seafood that we sell, and that's something that we'll continue doing. We we just need to look at different ways of getting that communicating that message. Um, social media is a great vehicle. You know, we're we're we're, we're realising the the benefit of social media in different forms. You know, we have our our, um, our our opportunities on Instagram and Facebook to talk about what we do here. You know, young Alex um, spends a lot of time in this area and he does it so brilliantly as well. Um, so I think moving forward, John, um, then the next steps for the industry is is about talking more about the products that they, they, they are trading, how we do it, why we do it, what we're doing to protect our environment, what we're doing about the sustainability of what we trade. Uh, I don't think enough of that's been said, to be honest, and I think we need, as a collective, to be doing that as much as possible. There is something about the seafood industry that drives normally sane folk to become obsessive, compulsive insomniacs. Uh, besides the person who doesn't sleep very much, I have this internal clock that tends to wake me up at about four, four and a half hour mark. Look, I think it's the fact that it's, 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 there no two days are the same. You know, you, you, every morning when you wake, you, you, you look ahead with thinking, okay, I know what we're going to have to do today, but it's expect the unexpected because a lot of that goes on. You're even just walking in from your car in the car park to the office, you know, you'll bump into any number of people that will just want to stop and have a chat, you know, whether they're a buyer, whether they're you know, a person who works in the shops, a wheeler who's wheeling the boxes around, you might bump into the odd fisher. It's always someone different that you'll speak to on a, on a daily basis. I think the industry still has a lot to offer. You know, I'm excited, but I just said I never at all contemplated working in the seafood industry. It just happened to land that way. But it gets into your blood very, very quickly. It um, gets into the pores of your skins first. Um, and it, it's just one of those things I get very excited about. Uh, no matter what, it, no matter how hard the work, week has been or, or the month or the year even, it's still one of those things you wake every morning and um, any, any apprehensions you had the night before about what was going on in, in, in the office, you know, they're all forgotten the next morning and you just get up on that bike and you start pedaling again. With over 40 years in the business, Gus maintains his enthusiasm, not just for the seafood industry, but mostly for his beloved Sydney fish market. His ongoing support and stewardship of everyone in the industry, from catchers to cooks, is to be respected. His never waning energy and positivity are true inspiration to all. This is Fishtails, a seafood podcast. A Deep in the Weeds production, I'm John Sussman. Follow us on Instagram at Fishtails Seafood Podcast or email us at fishtailspodcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay tuned for more tales from beneath the surface of the seafood world every Friday on your podcast app.